Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 382nd edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. And we're broadcasting in this, our ninth year, across the world from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. And this is the place where technology meets entertainment. We don't talk politics on this show, but and so this next segment is not about politics. It's really about technology. But um, I guess depending on which side of the fence you are, you probably think it's about politics. Now, in amongst this ridiculous national emergency declaration and the debates about President Trump's $40 billion border wall, experts say that there's a far more effective technology and at a fraction of the price. High-tech systems like radar, lidar, fibre optics, drones and cameras deployed along the border would be infinitely more effective than a wall and a hell of a lot cheaper. Fibre optic cables have been tested at the US-Mexican border and they can detect a range of intrusions from a rat running across the border to animals, to people, to vehicles, to the size of the vehicle and determine within a couple of feet their exact location. Now, this would do far more to secure the border than any physical barrier. Roughly 10 years ago, animals, people and vehicles crossed over a 100-foot cable, fibre optic cable, stretched across the dirt by a team of scientists. The experiment was a resounding success, heralding a new frontier in broader security technology. Yet for some reason, the federal government remains fixated on building a wall that critics have derided as a medieval solution to border security. A wall, you can climb over it, you can tunnel under it. It's ridiculous. But a fibre optic technology, you can't tunnel under it. And the second you go over it, your position's pinpointed and you're gone. Now, fibre optic technology, as I mentioned, can pinpoint with precision where border intrusions occur. It can determine exactly what's coming across the border and relay the information to border patrol agents in real time. Now, this technology can detect a threat and track that threat until the border patrol do the interdiction. Now, contrary to public belief, satellites carry less than 1% of human communication. Fibre optic cables stretch across the seafloor, buried under cities, and they're connected to people's homes. They carry the rest of the communications. And while they're mostly used to transmit telecommunications, they also detect motion. So experts say that fibre optic technology is advanced enough to work across the US-Mexican border. It's only a tenth of the cost of a wall, 
and it's ready to be deployed immediately and quickly. So if you start a wall today, it'll take forever to build the bloody thing. But you can lay fibre optic cable now, today, in half an hour, and take very little time to get it across the border. The technology itself is very simple. All that's required is fibre, like the ones commonplace in providing internet to your home. You don't need to put any sensors on the fibre. The fibre itself can be turned into a sensor and detect events anywhere along the length of the cable. The same fibre that secured the border can then also be used for telecommunications, providing broadband internet access to all the communities that live nearby. So that's a win-win. The technology, of course, needs to be combined with Border Patrol agents on the ground who are ready to respond to intrusions. Knowing in real time that something unexpected is happening within five metres of a particular location is extremely helpful to provide a response. You could be there with drones or with choppers or in a car in a matter of minutes. Now, the federal government's aware of the technology and customs and border protection. They began testing and evaluating fibre optic sensory equipment in the Arizona desert. The government even set aside the budget to explicitly test the system for border crossings. The fact is that fibre can be put in the ground, lit up with a laser, and have literally thousands of microphones listening to everything immediately all along the border at very little cost. It'd be interesting to know in this day and age why the government is so enamoured with century-old technology. It simply doesn't make sense. The second great option that's been submitted to the government, but as usual, it fell on deaf ears, although everybody said, wow, it's a wonderful idea. So instead of an endless, ugly, inert wall along the US-Mexican border, we could line the boundary with 2,000 miles of natural gas, solar and wind power plants. We use some of the energy to desalinate water from the Gulf of Mexico and the Pacific Ocean and ship it through pipelines to thirsty towns, farms and businesses on both sides of the entire border zone. You could hire hundreds of thousands of people from both the US and Mexico to build and run all the businesses. Companies would make money and provide security to safeguard their assets. A contentious, costly, no man's land would be transformed into a corridor of opportunity. And when you first look at it, you think, well, that's a silly idea, you know, and putting all those plants and things all along the border. But history's full of wacky ideas that ended up changing society. Now, in Australia, they, um, they built a thing called the Snowy Mountain Scheme and everybody said, well, that is just so huge and so ginormous and so impractical that it can't happen. They built it and it's been the backbone of power in Australia for 30 or 40 years. A consortium of 27 engineers and scientists from a dozen US universities developed the plan. So they're not a bunch of dingbats who don't know what they're doing. 
They're engineers and scientists from a dozen universities. So why don't we put the best scientists and engineers together to create a new way to deal with migration, traffic, and solve the access to water problem at the same time? Right along the border are regions of severe drought. And water supply is a huge future issue for not only all the states along the border, but for a number of states in both countries. Solar and wind farms and 2,000 miles of natural gas and water pipelines would power and supply water for farms and industry along the entire US-Mexico border, transforming it into a zone of opportunity for both countries. If you had all those power generators and water generators along the border, think of all the other companies and businesses that would spring up on either side of that become a thriving area and drones could monitor the whole thing the future energy water industry and education park plan would include institutes for innovation and worker education so the border region receives boundless solar energy it is sunny 90 percent of the year and is significant natural gas and wind resources it's also suffering from extreme drought and water sort shortages are predicted to get worse and worse in the future. Farming is unbelievably difficult. Jobs are scarce. We're also coming into an era where less and less people are going to be employed in traditional industries. So if an energy and water corridor were built, the facility owners would protect their own properties. Transmission, gas and water lines would be monitored by companies. Also contributing would be, no doubt, state and federal agencies, as they are now. And plants could be integrated with security walls. So with water and power, farming and manufacturing could flourish. That means jobs on both sides of the border. The future energy, water industry and education park would create massive opportunities for employment and prosperity. Politically, the Democrat, Democrats want a Green New Deal. Republicans want border security. Bingo, put them both together. Both parties could win. It would be a win-win for the US and for Mexico. And private enterprise would pay for the whole lot. The US taxpayers wouldn't be saddled for a cost of a hideous ugly, divisive wall. So, of course, there's lots of hard questions. Nothing's easy, but there's been lots of hard challenges in history that human ingenuity's found ways to overcome, and this is another one. The US and Canada have built and continue to protect important national infrastructure along their borders. For example, there's hydroelectric plants that produce power on both sides of Niagara Falls. The US and Mexico would be co-investors in the border industrial park, so they'd work together to guard it. One of the first steps would be to start a series of institutes along the corridor to bolster innovation and create workforce education. Probably you could run them as partnerships between academia, industry and government. 
The proposal that the consortium sent to the US legislators asked for just $1.1 billion to get these and other actions up and running. $1.1 billion. That's nothing compared with what's being asked for now. So building infrastructure is a big priority in the current Congress. So perhaps a border industrial park could really rally the legislators. They just have to think totally differently about how to solve the border issue. This is one way that can create a great opportunity for both countries. It seems to me that it sure beats the hell out of an ugly, useless, provocative wall. Okay, do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? You should. We've got about 1.8 million daily subscribers. It takes 30 seconds to read every day. And every day we tackle a different subject from advances in medicine to new apps to new technology. We talk about subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, uh, Bitcoin, etc., etc. Tomorrow's newsletter discusses the Australia's supermarket ban on single-use plastic bags, which has resulted in an 80% drop in single-use plastic bags in the last six months. You really should get the Bob Pritchard newsletter. And if you want to, simply go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and subscribe. My interview guest today is Rusty Egan. I love this guy. Rusty was a drummer with the new wave band Rich Kids with Sex Pistol Glenn Matlock. One hit, Rich Kids. Then he was with Visage for a number one worldwide hit, Fade to Grey. He had two top ten albums with Scottish group Skids, and he's now one of the most renowned DJs in London's boutique nightclub circuit for over 25 years. Rusty's a friend of mine, great guy, sensational DJ. I believe he's got a deal with iHeartRadio in the US, and Rusty will be my guest straight after the break. This is Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back in just a moment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Now, for the past eight years or so, we've given you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting people. 
talked about the services they provide, the challenges that they've faced, and we've, um, we've tried to find out what the hell it is that makes them tick. Everybody that's in business, doesn't matter what they do, they face the same issues and the challenges that all business executives and entrepreneurs face. Although at the time when you're going through it, it doesn't seem like it. So on this program, we try to address a wide variety of industries and the fascinating people that make those businesses in those industries successful. Last week, my wife and I had our annual huge party at our home in the Hollywood Hills for 120 friends, and we always put on entertainment. A great English friend of mine, now located in Los Angeles, who's one of the world's top music publicists and has worked with just major acts all over the planet, had a guy in from London working gigs in the US. He explained to me that Rusty Egan was great and that I should have him at the party. Now, Rusty began his career as a drummer for the British new wave band Rich Kids, founded by former Sex Pistol Glenn Maddock. Of course, I said, great, love to have him appear. But then I must admit, I thought, oh, sex, but what's this guy going to be like? Is he going to turn up with um, safety pins through his nose? What, you know, <laughs> what? I didn't have a clue. And, uh, well, let me tell you, Rusty was fantastic. He did a four-hour set. He was very, very funny. And the audience of essentially entertainment and business people absolutely love him. He's a terrific guy and we got along like a house on fire. So I thought it would be interesting to have him on as a guest. He's had, he's had a few challenges in his time and we'll talk about some of those today. But I've got Rusty on the line from London. Hi, Rusty. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You are being heard right around the world. Thank you very much, Bob. Yes, very excited. Uh, you've had an amazing career. You were part of the new wave movement in London in the 1980s, playing with a number of bands. Yes. You were DJing at influential clubs, including your own Camden Palace, and also operating a music store in London. Um, I mentioned your gigs with the rich kids with Glenn Matlock earlier. How did you get your start yeah. as a drummer in the music business? Well, um, my parents were musicians, oh, right. and uh, I, uh, my whole family, my brothers, everyone, we have a musical family. Uh, we were Irish, and uh, my mum and dad spent most of their life in the pub, <laughs> <laughs> on the stage, and then I got the job in the drum stool as soon as I was uh, able to play, actually. Um, but then I went out and answered adverts in the local paper. Uh, well, it wasn't a local paper. It was called the um, the Melody Maker, I think, back then. Oh, yep. And it's a drummer wanted. And one of the bands was The Clash. Right. I used to show up every day at this rehearsal room in Camden Town and play with uh, The Clash before they made a record. Right. As a matter of fact, I did introduce them to their drummer, a guy called Topper. So you work with um, you work with people like Mick Ronson, who of course work with Bowie. Um, what other what other major acts did you work with back then? Ah, well, what year are we uh, talking? Right at, yeah, 1980 was a very very vibrant time in London. Yes, and um, I worked 
as a drummer in this band with Glenn Matlock, the first album I made, produced by Mick Ronson, who was uh, Spiders from Mars and uh, wrote and produced a hell of a lot of great music. Yeah, um, unbeknownst to us, the band, uh, Mick was going through a, a lot of his own turmoil at that time. Um, after the Spiders from Mars broke up, it turned out that they they hadn't actually been paid very much and um, he, he didn't really um, have anywhere to live. You know, he, he didn't come from London. It was really a, a tough time for him. So by taking on a band and producing their album was a, a way for him to to change his career as a, and become a producer. And through that album, I met Midge Ewer, who was yep. the lead singer of the Rich Kids. Yep. We toured and got spat on and, you know, <laughs> at the time, it was a terrible time to be in a band, uh, as in, you know, fighting and punks and rockers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and through, through with Midge, when a band split up, I, I, I started to DJ in a small little club. And um, we met Phil Linnett. Have you ever heard of him? No, I haven't. He was in a band called Thin Lizzy. Oh, yeah, Thin Lizzy. And they had an album. Yep. The boys are back in town. The boys are back in town. Yeah. Um, so basically, um, I was DJing and um, playing all the music that I wanted to hear in a small little club uh, with a, a guy called Steve Strange who... Um, who was strange, to say the least, <laughs> uh, very, very influenced by David Bowie. Um, members of that club all went on to do some amazing things. Uh, the cloakroom attendant for a little while was Boy George. <coughs> and the, the local band were um, Spanda Ballet, and they did their first ever gig at, at the Blitz Club. Right. And then I was playing music that um, wasn't punk, it wasn't disco, you could dance to it, it didn't really have a name to it, but it was the very first records of Simple Mind, the very first record of Human League, Depeche Mode, OMD, and basically anything electronic and synth. And so, because because what? of that music... Midge and I made an album with a band we created called Visage. Yes. And you had a hit. Well, that album was a sort of groundbreaking album of that era, 1979, 1980. It was recorded in the garage of Martin Russian's house. All right. The next album he made was don't you want me, baby? Um, the, the sound of uh, yeah, song. he Great produced song. that. So, but I still loved rock. You know, yeah. I still loved rock at that time. But so, why did you decide to be a G DJ? Were you just a lousy drummer? No, no, it was in between. I, 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 it was in between the band split up, yeah. and oh, I did go clubs. I did, and and, and I hated the, the the music. They didn't play what I wanted to hear, and I said, look, why don't we just take over a little club on a Tuesday and I'll, I'll play Lou Reed and David Bowie and Roxy Music and Kraftwerk. And um, I did that and, and uh, we invited all our mates along and all our musicians and, 
and Steve invited all his very colourful friends along and fashion students and it was a little club in Soho called Billy's. It was a gay and, club, uh, right? Well, that was the point. We could get this club. We couldn't yeah. get any other club. So yeah. it, was, uh, it was more than a gay club. I think it was a club where where anything goes, you know. So you didn't you didn't know, is she a boy, is she a girl? Is, who, we loved it. Yeah, I can you know, imagine. It was, it was all very Bowie-esque as far as we were concerned. That was great. Yeah. And that was a, that was a great time for music, um, you know. And but, but not getting paid by managers and was oh, part of the course. Everyone. <laughs> um, so in '79, you opened the Blitz Club in Covent Garden. Yeah. And you said that it was a, a club for misfits, the odd, the weird, the sexually unsure, unaware. It was all very glamorous. Yeah. So what what was the thinking behind that? You were just trying to out Bowie well, Bowie. Well, you mentioned um, this was the time for, um, you mentioned your show about entrepreneurs and blah, blah, blah. Um, it was a recession. It was um, dark, um, empty, shops closed down, government uh, collapsing, um, rubbish not being collected and piled high in the streets. Um, you know, the the system of of government was falling apart and then along came Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. So uh, it was this, you know, end of the 70s and here comes the 80s and you can get rich and you could be the owner of your own home and, you know, all this stuff. Maggie came along telling everyone, more or less like Trump, we're going to make Britain great again and all this stuff. Um, so trickling down into, you know, kids with no money, uh, having just been through a whole punk thing, we wanted to dress up. We wanted to look like movie stars. We didn't want to look, look like homeless people, even yeah. though we were. <laughs> you know, we... We didn't have any jobs or anything. Like I said, the band split up, and then what shall I do? Oh, I'll just put some music on in a little club. You know, that was what I thought it was. I got a phone call from a band called The Skids. Yep. So I went up to Scotland and went in a garage and rehearsed with them, and uh, we made an album, which which is pretty um, heralded now. It's called Days in Europa. So I spent about a year with them whilst while still DJing at my club once a week. Right. So I don't know how I managed to do that, really. So what, um, there was clubs everywhere. What what made your club successful? I mean, why were you successful when people all around you were sort of struggling? What was the... What was well, the, as I said, um, it was the end of the 70s, and as far as I was concerned, it was the end of disco. Right. And punk had come along, and it was the end of punk as far as I was concerned. So there was this... There was this blank, and I was I was finding records by Ultrabox and Magazine and Simple Minds to add to the Bowie and Roxy and Kraftwerk and Grace Jones, and basically I played what I thought to be current, great music to hear in a club if you are twenty one, twenty two. Yeah. And yowza yowza, get up and boogie and disco might have been going on in America. But for young British kids, we wanted the synthesizer. We wanted this new sound. And OMD, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, 
they brought out a record called Electricity, and I loved it, and I played these records, and then I started to find other records based around sort of Georgia Baroda or Kraftwerk, right. electronic music. So what made the club happen was the fact that the Blitz was um, a wine bar themed on the 1940s Blitz. Right. People dressed up like movie stars, 1940s. Yeah. They made their own clothes going to college, <laughs> and they heard this futuristic music coming from the DJ um, with lyrics like, you know, Trans Europe Express. Um, and it was all very um, film noir. Yep. So people, people got the cameras out and everyone was taking photographs. And then basically it became the equivalent of today, like Facebook Live. Look at me. Yep. Look what I wore. Look what I'm doing. And, what, and, and it wasn't like I'm unemployed. I come from Durham. I've got no future, which was the sort of Sex Pistols thing. We hate everything and, and yeah. we've got no future in Thatcher, right, Britain. Um, it was like, I can be something, I can do something. I can, um, I can at least make myself look good. Well, yeah, and that, 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 yeah. You've got an, you've got an incredible ability to pick music that everybody likes. Like at our ah, place, we yeah. had, we had yeah. what, 120, 130 people and they were a cross section most of them in the music business or the entertainment business one way or another, but a cross-section of people, and they just loved you. They, they you know. Thank you, yeah. We've had so much feedback that said, you know, that guy was just phenomenal. So you've obviously well, got you know, a good feel. Yeah, I've always what done that, though, Bob, and it's not rocket science, is it, Bob? It's not rocket science. If you, if you pick music, you, like, look, you've got an iPod or something, and you, you pick all your favorite songs and you go to a party and the guy says, can you put the music on? You go, yeah, I'm loving this at the moment. And you play it and people say, I love your taste in music. I've only got a great taste in music. I also happen to write and produce music myself. Yeah. And I am influenced by, and I made an album, uh, made an album, my own album, um, Rusty Egan Presents. And I wrote a song, and I thought, you know what? This is, re this is really like Joy Division or New Order. Yeah. And I called up Peter Hook, the bass player, who was no longer in um, New Order. And I said, Peter, I've written this song. Um, would you have a listen? I'd love you to you know, collaborate. And immediately he heard the song, called me back, sent me his bass playing and his singing. And I said, I can't believe it. You, you did it. He said, I loved it as soon as I got it. And it was like, I must have just picked the exactly the right person for the record, you know? That's a skill. Well, That's a skill. Yeah, That's not well, then I did it. Skill. I, I, it gave me more confidence. So I had another song I'd written about um, uh, people when I was DJing. They, they met and fell in love in a club and they disappear i wouldn't see them for years because they got married and had kids and sadly it broke up and they were back in the club so i wrote this song called lonely highway you right. can get off the lonely highway about people looking for love in clubs because i saw it every night when i worked in the club as a dj yeah and um i thought 
I'd love Tony Hadley from Spandau on this. So I thought, well, just send it to him. Same thing happened. Came back with a demo vocal. What do you think of that, Russ? I said, it's perfect. He said, let's do it. And he said, but I've written the end. I've written the end, you know, and he wrote this whole guy. So I said, okay, you get a share of the writing. I always share my writing. And then I thought, well, I've got Spandau. I might as well, I wanted to put the sax on it, get Steve Norman from Spandau. So I got Steve Norman to play the sax. And then Tony Hadley left the band. Oh, no. <laughs> so it's like, I am no longer in Spandau Ballet. And I go, oh, no, they're going to stop me putting my record out. But they didn't. They didn't. So basically, I got, I got two guys from Spandau on, on my, my record. And then I, I wrote and produced, I don't know, loads of records with Midjure, um, i.e. Visage, a couple of albums at least. And then I had this song, which we'd already called Glorious, with the keyboard player from Gary Newman, a guy called Chris Payne. Yeah. And uh, basically he sends me great keyboard parts and then I write. And um, I had this song and I thought I'd send it to Mitch. And again, Mitch said, I love it, but I'm going to change it. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to keep your chorus. <laughs> I'm going, yeah, yeah. And he got, he wrote a whole whole new verses, middle eight, the whole thing. I mean, Midge is a phenomenal writer. Yeah. I don't know if you know, but he did write "Do You Know It's Christmas" with Bob. Oh, Gilles. really? <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. He wrote he wrote that, and uh, he had a number one himself with "If I Was," and he's basically on the road forever now. He's yeah. doing a he's doing about three hundred gigs a year. So yeah, so my album is out and um, I go to parties and I pick and play music I think people will love and, uh, and at your house that day in the Hollywood Hills overlooking the city, beautiful people, all of them with a fantastic musical and or film history, I just dug into my bag and I thought, I wonder if they've heard Credence Clearwater Revival doing Marvin Gaye. Yeah. <laughs> it's right. about seven minutes long beautiful guitars and I and I dropped tracks like that that everybody absolutely loved it they loved it now yeah. let's just go back a little bit like Simple Minds is a monster Scottish band sold you know 70 or 100 yeah. million records what was your relationship with Simple Minds well as I said I heard their very first uh, record because I went out and searched and as part of the key to being a, a great DJ, finding music. And I'm really good at that, and I'm still doing it. I have a radio show, and I've been discovering artists. And basically what I do now, today, is obviously I, I just find them and send them a message. And there's a, a band from Australia I'm loving, and they're called Dreams, D-R-E-A-M-S. And they've got a, a, an album called No One Defeats Us. And I, I've got a meeting tomorrow because I've, I've, I've submitted the song for a movie and they want it. And I'm writing to this band called Dreams. They're not answering anything. I found the lead singer. He was in another Australian band. And I found him on Twitter and I've written to him. And I'm, I'm going to this meeting with a film company going, right, have you got that band? We like that song. No one defeats us. And I've, um, I think they, they, they were involved with quite a lot of other bands. So basically... When I found Simple Minds, Life in a Day, it was their first record. And when I contacted them, it was like, there's some bloke in London. 
And and they knew who I was because they, they they followed the rich kids and Sex Pistols and punk. And he loves our record and he's playing it in the club, you know. Yeah. And when you are when you are unknown, it, it's great if somebody like like you even has a radio show and you hear about something great in Australia and you listen to it and then you contact and go, hi, it's Bob Pritchard here in Hollywood. We love your album. And they, wow, Bob Pritchard contacted me. You know, it's a big boot. They never forget it, you know, because you were the first to be there. Well, I did the same with you, with you too. Yeah, I was going to get the same with you too. I was going to get to you too. So, but before yeah. we, before we get to you two, everybody in every business doesn't matter what sort of business you're in, whether you're in the music business or you're a plumber. Yeah, um, you always face challenges, and the music industry is no different. It's a business like any other business. And in 1987, everything went to shit for you, and yeah. you became homeless um, in 1990. How did that come? Yeah, about? what did you do? <laughs> How did you well, end up in that mess? Well, uh, the the rise, I had the rise, uh, the, the number one album and then the clubs. And, and what happened was a guy walked into my record shop and he said, I want to buy this record, Fade to Grave by Visage. And I said, I made it. And uh, he, he already knew. He knew. He knew. Yeah. He'd heard where to find. You know, I didn't know that. He already knew. And he was from France, and he'd made a record that I've just remixed this month, as a matter of fact, by a band called Space, and it was called Magic Fly. And he said, "I'm a record producer, and I made this album. I made that." I said, "I know what you've done because I was a fan of music. I said, I love that record. You want to meet the band? I'm going to Paris. I'll pay for your flight and all this stuff." It was very impressive. Basically, he wooed me, took yeah. me to Paris, took me to the studios. This was like amazing for me, and. Um, basically said, son, I'm going to make you a star. I'm going to invest in you. You've made this amazing record. It's going to be number one all over the world. And I, I was like this bright-eyed kid. I found someone who who believes in me, yeah. you know. Yep. And basically, him and a lawyer, we set up all these companies, and suddenly I was going to be rich and everything was going to be brilliant. And basically, we set up all the companies, and then they locked me out. They locked me out of all my own companies. Everything we had, all the studios, all the music companies, everything, they locked me out and basically raped and pillaged the companies. So I ended up losing my home. I just ended up, you know, messed up. And then it was the beginning of Acid House. And I hadn't had a drink or a drug, never touched anything. But suddenly... I'm in a field with 10,000 people. They've all got their hands in the air wearing smiley T-shirts. And I'm standing there thinking, what is this? How am I going to, I need to sign it. You know, there's no band. You know, who do I sign? Who do I try to discover? You know, I was trying to get my life back. Yeah. And bottom line was, because I my life was so messed up, I was the easy prey to uh, take drugs. Yeah. And I took ecstasy and I absolutely loved it. And as far as I was concerned, it was like 1967. <laughs> it was the summer of love. And the music was amazing. And I was going into record companies and they were like, yeah, he's washed up. He's finished. Forget him. <laughs> I found Seal. Can you believe that? I found Seal in a rave. Yeah. Have you heard of Seal? Yeah, absolutely. 
yeah, well, I took him and his demo to Trevor Horn, and they were like, yeah, thanks a lot, mate. Yeah, we'll let you know. And um, didn't let me know. I didn't know they signed him. I was just wasted trying to get my life in order. Yeah. And I met another guy. I met another guy and he said, let's start a company. I said, I don't, I don't start companies. I get robbed. I do what I do. I give you an invoice and that's it. I own me. And yeah. I learned to own me. Yeah. I learned to, to own you now. And, uh, and to be honest, I could have been a millionaire 10 times over, but... I would have lost it all again. I would have got robbed again because I'm a musician. I'm not an entrepreneur in a boardroom knowing about extraordinary uh, shareholders meetings and diluting shares. And uh, I don't know any of that stuff. And yeah. I have no interest in it. Yeah. You know? It, it, it is and, and money was never the thing. Yeah. I'm a creator. It's amazing. So basically, I was robbed. Yeah. It's amazing how many people in business, in all sorts of businesses, that get taken and get locked out of their own companies it happened it is so it's not only in the music yeah. business, it happens across it's all like, businesses. i know a lot of people that have been it, caught like that it's like you come home to your wife and she's changed the locks and there's a lawyer there reading you your rights you know who told and you basically that, that happened to who told you yeah, about that, that <laughs> well i woke up you know i woke up and i thought i'm i'm bloody homeless and my gold records are on the wall of a house I can't get into and I still have to pay the mortgage. I have no right to live in it. I've got a baby. I've lost, I, I sold my car to get through the, the year because I'd lost my company before that. So I've got no car, I've got no home, uh, I've all got no possessions. And you won't believe it, in the middle of all this insanity, on, on ecstasy, I met the most beautiful girl. I couldn't believe it. I had nothing. I'd lost everything. And she didn't know, because I kind of looked okay, and I hadn't, I hadn't, I wasn't a homeless, beaten up guy. I was a, I was a couch surfer, you know. Yeah. I was the the mate. I was on a mate sofa, and you know, and then he, he's moving. I got to find another one, and I moved in with her. So, what do you call a drummer without a girlfriend? Homeless. <laughs> <laughs> so I was a drummer with a girlfriend. So great. And. Um, and uh, Basically, um, she fed me and looked after me, and I wrote a song on my album because uh, I lost my wife in 2011 after 25 years and, and three kids. And uh, basically, she was ill for many years as well, so my whole career went and hit the wall as well much later on. But right at the beginning, she fed me and looked after me, and basically, I said, "I'm going to get, I'm going to, I'm going to get my life together again." And then I wouldn't. I'd get up at three in the afternoon because I was taking drugs. And I just had to stop taking drugs. I kept trying to stop taking drugs. But when, you, when you're in it, you're in it. Yeah. It's so, so difficult. And I don't mean like I was, I was like heroin and stuff. I was on party drugs and I was going to raves and, you know, all the beginning of all the great DJs and, and all the house music. And uh, it was just this is another opportunity for me to make it. I've yeah, got yeah. to, you know, and I was all like that every day trying to do it. But every Friday night, boom, wasted and nothing came off. And all the business people were like, he had his day, forget him, he's over. Now, it really the, is, yeah, you know, horrible, you know. The extraordinary part of your story, I reckon, is that here you are, down and out, everything's gone to shit, and the guys from U2 come to your aid. How did that come about? Well, 
Uh, you wouldn't believe it. I, I was in a club and their manager called me over and gave me five grand. And I said, what's that for? He said, come to Dublin and I'll let you know. How about Monday? And I went, I went over to my girlfriend and said, I can't believe it. I've got to go to Dublin. And I went to Dublin and the band knew what happened to me and they gave me a job. They didn't need me. They didn't, they didn't, they just knew that this wonderful guy who'd done this wonderful thing in London and helped all these bands and made all this music had hit hard times. Yep. Yeah, and, and they gave me this job with Bubba Records and all I had to do was listen to all the music. So I found all these bands, they didn't want them. They didn't want any bands. They just wanted someone to write to them who actually cared, who actually listened to their music and said, we've listened to your music, we really love it, we'd love to help you, we've got a small little label and basically offer them uh, a small little help along. So you two have a company called Not Us and that company helps a hell of a lot of people that a lot of people don't know about. They really, really put their money back in. They're amazing people. And they, they knew that I'd always said that, no matter what, I'd felt it and said it. And then you won't believe this. Last year, every year, I've always been invited to everything of you two. You know, they just never cut me out. They always were open for me. And about... I think last year they brought out this new album and I absolutely loved it. And I have to admit, there were a couple of years when they brought out, I think, How to Dismantle a Bomb. And I was like, oh, I'm not really that mad on that now. I wish they'd, you know, where's Brian Eno? Where's, you know, I was all like that, you know. Yeah, yeah. And of course, they'd gone off into areas that weren't quite me. But they were back now. They were back in this area with the, the, the new album, Songs of Innocence. And I basically sent an email saying, guys, I absolutely love the new album. Love is bigger than anything. Wow, I'd love to mix that. And they replied, okay. I was like, what? <laughs> mix, mix it. <clears throat> but we'd also like you to mix Summer of Love. So I got straight on the phone to my mate that I've done a few mixes with out in Austria. And I said, look, I've got this opportunity. I've got to make it work. And the bottom line is they loved it. And they released it. It's out. It's got like, you know, a million hits. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. And they paid me. So bottom line is you two absolutely love them. I've done their next record, um, but I can't play it to anyone until they say yes. And uh, it's, it's called Red Flag Day. And when I found out that the song is about the, um, the um, children that, were washed up on the beaches yeah. in um, from Syria. And if you listen to the words, it's phenomenal. But it was really fast, you know, and I was like, this has got to be, you know, orchestrated. So I basically orchestrated it with synthesizers. You can do it yeah, these days. Sure. You don't need a 70-piece orchestra. You just got one finger. <laughs> <laughs> Press this button. <laughs> But you know, you got to arrange it. But the bottom line was with um, with 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 my Austrian friend HB Hoger, yeah. we made the bass drum a heartbeat. I said, make it a heartbeat, you know, boop, boop, you know, yeah. with a little delay. So I'm I'm in love with the music again. It's really it's really got me. And I think for any business person, when you lose the love for the business itself, 
Yep. You know, you, 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 that, you, you get the love for another business. And I'm a big fan of Elon Musk. Are you? Yeah, absolutely. You know Elon Musk? Yep, absolutely. And he says, just make something you love. And make, if you've got 100 people that love what you do. Yep. You know, and basically, yeah, he's made a car, his dream car, the Tesla. Yeah. And did you know that when you turn the radio on, it goes up to 11? Oh, really? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And did you know that Spinal Tap got paid in a court case after 40 years? Did you know that? No, I didn't. They won their court case. I think what's incredible is that, you know, for a guy that's had new wave, sex pistols, homelessness, being flat broke. Um, yes. You, you know, and then having you two come along and believe in you and get involved in mixing their songs. And I think that that's it is a great testament to you because, I, I, you know, I spent a lot of time with you at the party and uh, yeah. you are a hell of a good guy. And I, I really, really, you did a phenomenal job, and I'm really proud to know you. So, thank Rusty, you, Rusty. We're just about out of time. So, yeah, I do talk, don't I? I do yeah, talk. You're good at it. But, <laughs> geez, you're good. So, thank you very much for your brilliant performance last week, and for speaking. Yeah, thank on, you on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You've made a friend here for life, I promise you. And I urge everyone... Oh, I'm looking forward to seeing you. I'm going to gate crash. I'm going to borrow your sofa. Okay, no problem. So yeah. I, I urge everybody who's listening to this show to go to rustyegan.net. That's rusty, R-U-S-T-Y, Egan, E-G-A-N.net. And check out his fantastic album releases and, and where you can catch if you happen to be pretty much anywhere in the world, where you can catch him live or on the radio. It's all there, and uh, he is a super, super guy. And I'll be back. So are you, Bob. So Thanks. are you. Thank you for inviting me to your wonderful home and your wonderful friends. And I hope you book me again next year for the annual Australia Day Bob Pritchard party. Thank you. Thanks, mate. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Network, and we're broadcasting today from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, where entertainment meets technology. This year, hopeful entrepreneurs will list thousands of projects, books and films and drones and watches and board games and toothbrushes and all sorts of stuff on the largest, most popular and longest standing platform, Kickstarter. So what's the success rate on Kickstarter? What type of products work and what what don't? Which are the least successful ones? And how much money on average do creators of new products raise? 
So this is an analysis of publicly available Kickstarter data over the past decade. Entrepreneurs can post their project, which can be a tech product, a book or a film or whatever, to the platform, set a monetary goal and raise money from the general public to pursue it. Now, Kickstarter is an all or nothing program, which means the entrepreneur only keeps the money if their goal is totally met. And since its inception, the site has listed 433,000 projects. And the major Kickstarter projects, 40% of films, 16% of music, 13% books, 11% followed by tech at 9%, art at 8%, design at 8% and fashion at 6%. All other categories trail way behind that. So tech and design, which, you know, frequently overlap, make up 17% and games clock in at 10 Among all projects, 37, 37% succeed in meeting their goal and 63%, which is about 250,000, so that 433,000 um, projects, over 250,000 of them fail. So four, four categories – Theatre, comics, music and art far outpace the average success rate and tech lags way behind. Overall, the average successful project is a goal nearly 50% lower than the average unsuccessful. So the lower you go for, the more chance you've got of getting it. I suppose that makes sense. The average goal among successful projects is $6,100. So it's not a place where you're going to raise millions compared to a goal of 13700 for those that are unsuccessful. So, you know, you've heard about the exceptional ones like Pebble Watcher exploding kittens where they raise millions, but of the unsuccessful projects, 20% fail to raise a single dollar and 67% raise less than $10,000. So it's very difficult for it to work, but collectively all projects have raised $4.1 So that's a lot of money that some people have got. And across all categories, the average successful project raises 23000 while the average unsuccessful project raises 1500 So it's a tough way to raise money. And of the 100 most funded projects in history, 47% are games, with 35% being tech and design. Art, books, comics, food, photography and theatre have absolutely none in the top 100. So the tip is, keep your copy short, sweet and crisp. The average successful campaign is only 460 words. Projects with with a video are 105% more likely to meet their goal, and entrepreneurs who update their backers every five days get three times more in contributions. So I hope that's a help. Remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. As I say every week, any bastard can do the ordinary. You don't want to be normal. You're always going to be boring.
You never know how amazing and exciting and a thrilling person you can be if you just push the envelope. So I hope you can join me again next Tuesday while I'll be again broadcasting from our studios in Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. In the meanwhile, have a great week and continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.